good morning, Rocky Peak. Happy week after Easter. So glad you're here. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting into the Word together. I uh, wanted to give you a quick update. You know, we did this water initiative again this year. And I want to give you an update. If you still want to give to that, you can. But um, we wanted to announce where we're at so far that we have received just a little over $50,000. Uh, and so we are really excited because this year... Uh, we're actually part, you know, we're going, we're sending a team to Tanzania to share the message of Jesus uh, with uh, kind of uh, Muslim communities that have never really heard until we went last year and had some great success there. Things are really going well. So we're sending another team back. And so this will actually be part of that, that we'll be providing water for seven new communities as well as sharing the living water of Jesus. So just a great partnership, how that works. So way to go on that. And we're excited to see uh, what God does as we go this summer there. The work on the wells has already actually begun. So anyway, uh, we're going to go to our time of teaching. I can't remember if I didn't introduce myself. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. If you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you as well. But uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. And so you want to pull those out over in the uh, ridge. You want to pull those out too. I know I can see you. So uh, get that ready to go. And no, no, no slacking over there. All right. So um, you guys ready to go? Uh, let's pray. God, we're excited to be here and to be pursuing you. We're just thankful for the way you have pursued us over our lives. And not just individually, but you've pursued us as a race throughout history through uh, the nation of Israel and through the coming of the Messiah. And so, God, we just pray that today as we unpack this more, we look at the story, we understand a little bit more of how intentional you've been in pursuing us, that you just create a desire in us that's fresh and new to pursue you with a whole heart. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today. It's a, it's a cold uh, winter night. It's uh, freezing out. It's raining uh, there is lightning, there is thunder, and if, if we were there, we'd see two men coming from this large building. They're walking down an ancient pathway. They're clothed in cloaks, moving out into the rain. We'd find out later they've just come from the bedside of a dying king. And as he's died, he's been bewailing the fact there is no heir to his throne. And so as we watch him go out, they head out into the, the stormy night. They're heading towards the ocean, towards the cliffs that overlook the sea as if they're being drawn there by some sort of mysterious force. There's an older man and a younger man. The younger, uh, the older man's a mentor to the younger. And so clothed up, got their cloaks on, they're heading to the seashore. When they get to the top, the ocean, as you can imagine, on this night is just going crazy, raging, dark. But all of a sudden, they see way out at sea, there's a ship that's riding high on a wave, So today, we are continuing a series that we started about four weeks ago, I think it was. It's called Unfiltered, Capturing a True Image of Jesus. And so if you're brand new, I want to welcome you. Um, what, what this series is really about is that uh, most people who've studied this, thought about this, would agree that Jesus of Nazareth, and it's whether you're a Christian or not, it doesn't make any difference, that Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential person in human history. Um, in fact, uh, the first couple of weeks I shared some quotes with you on that. I want to share a new one today. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the author H.G. Wells, like War of the Worlds? Yeah, very popular in the last century. A lot of people don't know that his day job was a historian, he's a famous historian, uh, not a believer in Jesus, but this is what he wrote there in your note sheet. More than 1,900 years later, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the, the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of greatness is what did he leave to grow 
Did he start men thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? And by this test, Jesus stands first. And so what we're, we're in this series, we want to go back and kind of recapture some new images of Jesus. The problem is, is that all of us, who have grown up, the way we're raised, the way our culture goes, whatever, we often have these kind of filtered images of Jesus that honestly are often more of a projection of who we are or who we think Jesus should be or how our culture is trending than, than who he actually is or was. And so what we're doing in this series, we're going back to one of the earliest documents that describes the life and teaching of Jesus written by a man named Matthew, first book in our New Testament, just to get some, capture some new images uh, to see if we can better understand who Jesus is and, of course, what it means to follow him today. So uh, there in your note sheet, uh, you have a section called Unfiltered, the King's Genesis. And what we're going to be starting to do is we're going to be starting uh, in chapter 1 and verse 19. So if you have your Bibles, if you go ahead and take those out. If you have your apps, go ahead and turn them on. Um, so far in this series, in chapter 1, what we've seen is that uh, Matthew is writing this, uh, this gospel, and he's, the point that he's making, the claim that he's making is that Jesus of Nazareth, as far-fetched as that might sound, he, he's actually the great king, the Messiah that was promised to Israel. And on top of that, he's not just the king of Israel, he's actually king of all creation. Now, we saw that last week with his resurrection as we jump to the end. Um, and so he's been making this claim that everything's been leading up to Jesus, and he started with a genealogy to show that Jesus of Nazareth has the right uh, family tree, that he comes from the line of Abraham, he comes from the line of David. But today we come into the first uh, real action in the book, which uh, has to do with his supernatural birth, right? So it's kind of an interesting topic. So we're going to jump in and uh, pick it up at 118. So he says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And so um, in the Greek, it's what it actually says, this is the genesis of the Messiah. Uh, remember, we saw that in the very first week, in the very first verse, we talked about the genesis, how, how Matthew is tying together the genesis of our race with the genesis of Messiah and how one is coming to answer the other. And so he says, so here's the situation. Uh, his mother's name was Mary, and she was pledged to be married to this man named Joseph. Now, uh, we don't know for sure, but in, the, in ancient Israel... Um, couples would tend to get married young, right? So we're looking at maybe a uh, typical male, 18 to 20, typical female, 12, 14, 16, married pretty young. Um, and they are pledged, or you may have heard the term betrothed. Now, a betrothal or a pledge is sort of like our engagement, but it's not near as uh, legally binding uh, engagement. Like if you're engaged to someone today and you decide to break off that engagement or both parties decide to break up. It's usually kind of sad, right? It's kind of sad, unless maybe you're praying that that will happen. But uh, like, God, please, yes, you answered my prayer. That's awesome. He was so good, not good for her. Um, anyway, so, um, but it's a little sad, right? But there's no legal ramifications. Like, you don't have to go back to the courthouse and say, hey, by the way, uh, we're not getting engaged, so take it off the books. Nothing like that, right? That, uh, but in Israel, ancient Israel, that a pledge was a legal commitment. In other words, when you're pledged to someone, catch this, you're technically married now. So you don't move in together, you don't have the wedding yet, you're not sleeping together, but you're technically married to the extent that if you want to break the pledge, you have to get a divorce. Right? Uh, or if during that betrothal period, before you're actually married, if the, if the husband dies, um, the wife is from that point on considered a widow. Okay? So it's a legal, it's a very legal thing. 
So what I want you to catch is they're fairly along. Their families have negotiated this out. Two goats, I don't know what it is, but they kind of, they, they've negotiated this out. They're getting married. They're betrothed. It's legal. It's happening. And all of a sudden, Mary uh, is discovered to be pregnant. Now, uh, her story, of course, is that um, this is a God thing. Right? Um, and I'm sure that you know, went over about as well as it would go today. Um, but see, that's, that's her claim. And so Joseph, like, as we'll see, you know, later that he's like, there's no way. Now I need to do uh, a quick sidebar here on the virgin birth. I don't spend a lot of time here on this, but I want to do a quick sidebar because I think, you know, if you were out in culture today, you were talking with people that maybe aren't believers in Jesus. One of the things that might come up would be like, how could the, there's no, no way you could be a virgin birth. I mean, this is a myth, right? That there are lots, like if you go on the internet and you put in miraculous births, it'll come up with several examples throughout history of religions or groups that you know, there'll be like a miraculous birth. And so for the non-believer today, there are many who would say, hey, we are scientific people today. We know that doesn't happen. This is a myth. It's a legend. There was a lot of that going around in the ancient world. But here's the thing. If you were to research this, which I have, if you were to research this, what you would find is that when you compare the account of the virgin birth in Matthew with other ancient accounts of some kind of supernatural birth, they are like night and day. They are not even in the same ballpark. Like, let me give you an example. We started the day with the story of these two guys walking the range of the cliff, right? That is a story, at least one of the versions, of the birth of King Arthur. So, so what happens, they go to the seashore, um, they're up there on the cliff, they see way out at sea, almost like it's coming from heaven, they see this boat, right? It's got dragon wings on the boat. And at that moment, all of a sudden, it lights up and all the people on the deck, like from, to, from, the, you know, from the bow to the stern, completely, they're all illuminated. They all are like lit up, you know, like they're angelic people or something. And then there's a series of nine huge waves that come in towards the shore as they're watching this. And on the ninth wave, it turns into a wave of fire. And on the fire is a naked baby who washes up at Merlin's feet, who's gone down below the magicians. The two guys are Merlin and his mentor. And so now we know how King Arthur was born. Now let me tell you something. That is about as believable as any of the stories. Like, that's probably the best. Are you with me? Like, you guys, the other kind of stories are like this, you know, woman gets a special flower and puts it on her belly, and that's, you know, she gets pregnant. Or, um, or this woman has a baby, but he comes out a full-grown warrior. You know, that, those kind of things. So when, you, when people say this, like, oh, this is just Christianity's version, it is completely different. There is, it's like the only thing that's happened is both are claimed miraculous. But when you look at the actual account, We've got a genealogy here. We've got Joseph's genealogy. Uh, we've got a, a, a real storyline. There's two real people in history, Mary and Joseph. Mary is, becomes a follower of Jesus. We get to Acts chapter 1. She's in the upper room with the apostles when the Holy Spirit comes. Um, you know, so we're not talking mythology. This is a very sane written history. The second thing I want to say about the virgin birth is that, of course, it's true that, in, that we have more information, we, more biological understanding on how conception uh, and birth, how that happens. We, we, we have much more information. But they were pretty clear on where babies came from. All right? 
And we're going to see that in Joseph's account. He's not like he gets word that she's pregnant. He's like, I bet it's the Messiah. I bet it's the Holy Spirit. No, his response is going to be, that's crazy. I don't care what she says. I'm divorcing her. I, I, know, I, I know how babies are made. I know it's not my baby. So we need to divorce. Okay? So, um, so what we're going to have here is a, a supernatural account to, to the coming of this great king. And of course, what Matthew is doing in these opening two or three, four chapters, he's going to be laying out several fulfillments of, of Old Testament prophecy and all to show that this is the, the great king of Israel. So, so anyway, so, in, um, so the Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they come together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, in the Greek it actually says he was righteous, he was a righteous man, but he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he could have just taken her to the temple, we know this, and, and, and made a very public scene that would have been very humiliating for her, but he didn't want to do that. So he has in his mind to divorce her quietly. So he's kind of, he's thought this through. Hey, there's no way around this. I need to divorce her. I don't want to embarrass her. Um, so we're going to do it. So one of the options they had, if you didn't go to the temple, you could do a divorce simply by getting two Jewish men to come witness a ceremony where you say, I divorce you in the presence of these two witnesses, and it's done. Right? So apparently that's what his planning is to do. He's come to that decision. Um, and so on uh, verse 20, but after he'd considered this, uh, an angel of the Lord shows up. And of course, we're going to see angels uh, quite often here in the first couple chapters. We won't see a lot of them after that. As I often say, they're no more common then than now. So he's not expecting this. But uh, the angel appears to him in a dream. He says, Joseph, son of David, catch that. Remember, that's the whole genealogy around for, for the Messiah to have the right. He's got to have a legal line to the throne. So Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her, it is from the Holy Spirit. It's, she's telling the truth. And can you imagine this? And you're like, really? I mean, it's just like shocking, right? And, uh, and so he says, so here's what you need to do. There's kind of three things you need to do. Number one, you need to take her home, and you need to marry her, right? Um, and so she's going to be moved from being uh, this betrothed status to your wife, because what is conceived is in the Holy Spirit, and she's going to give birth to a son. Now, remember, uh, up to this point, um, he doesn't know that. This is, uh, this is before ultrasound, right? So um, there's no way for her to go to the doctor, and it's before gender reveal parties, right? So there's nothing happening here, you know, pink balloon or blue balloon. Um, and so he says, she's, not only is she expecting, she's going to have a little boy, Right? And so I want you to adopt that son as your own, and, uh, and then as the father, that's your right, I want you to give him the name Jesus, right? because he'll save his people from their sins. So three things, uh, marry her, adopt her, the son, and then name him. Here's the name. Now, the name that was given, uh, Jesus, is, was a very popular name in Israel. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but um, I remember the first time I was reading through like Josephus, the, the, you know, it's like several volumes, this Jewish Roman historian, they're like, Jesus is all over the place. And it's a little disconcerting, you know? Like you almost think, well, our 21st century, oh, they just want Jesus, you know? And it's like, no, no, it's a very common name. And the reason it was so popular is that Jesus in Greek is the same as Joshua in Hebrew. And so Joshua is one of the most famous guys in Israel's history, right? He's a great general, loved the promised land. So you had to name your son. You know, you probably don't want to choose Ichabod. You go instead, you know, there's so many bad ones. 
um, but you want to go for, you know, Joshua. So uh, they named Joshua, but the name Joshua, Ketchis, means Yahweh is salvation. And so the angels, it's very important what you name this son, because name is going to describe his destiny, and he says he will, because he is going to save his people from their sins. Now, this is one of those places where we have to take off our 21st century lens and we have to go back to the first century. Because often today, as we would read that as 21st century Christ followers, we would read it like this. He's going to come and die for the sins of the world on a cross. And so if you accept Jesus as your personal savior, you'll go to heaven when you die. Trust me, that is not what Joseph is hearing. Joseph is a part of the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God. And for the last 600 years, with rare exceptions, they've been under bondage of foreign leadership. In 586 BC, the Babylonians came in, did their final demolition of Jerusalem. They destroyed the city, took the final remnant of people away in captivity. And so the prophets said the reason this is happening they predicted it long in advance. So the reason it's going to happen is because you've rejected God's leadership over your life. You've been living in rebellion. You've been worshiping idols. And so after hundreds of years of that, you're going to lose your nation. You're going to lose the temple. And so catch this. The reason the nation of Israel went into exile was because of their sins. And the prophets began to predict, yes, you will go away, but one day God will bring you back and there will come a day when God will return to the nation and God will forgive your sins and he will restore you and all wrongs be turned to right. So if you're Joseph in the first century, you are still waiting for that to happen. Yes, some Jews came back to Israel. Yes, a minority came back to, to Israel. Yes, that's happened. Yes, there's a temple. But God has never returned to the temple, as we'll talk about later. That's not happened. And he's not freed you from your enemies. You have pagan overlords. You're slaves in your own land. And so if you're a first century Jew, you're waiting for God to come and forgive the sins of your nation, then to restore your nation and to drive out your enemies. And when an angel shows up and says, you're going to have a son and his name is going to be Joshua and he's going to save his people from their sins, you're hearing that, that the kingdom of God long promised is going to be tied to this son that's being born. And so after he lays that out, then Matthew says this. He says, all this, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now, I want you to underline or circle that word fulfill. This is an extremely important word in this gospel. Because remember, the whole theme of the gospel is I want to show you how everything in Israel's history is leading up to the coming of Messiah that he will fulfill our story. He'll bring our story to an end. And along the way, because he's the Messiah, he will fulfill many of the ancient prophecies about Messiah. And so in these first four chapters, Matthew is going to give us five catches, five fulfillments. All right? And for the first four chapters, five fulfillments using six verses to kind of make his case. So he's already shown us the genealogy it's got a case number one. Now he's going to give us five fulfillments. Are you with me? So today we're looking at fulfillment number one. And the fulfillment number one has to do with a, 
a promise that was made or a, pro, a, a passage back in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah 7:14. Very famous because we see it at Christmas, right? That a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and, and, and we'll call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, okay? Now, to understand this fulfillment, because Matthew uses that term fulfillment in a couple distinct ways. And we're not going to talk about that today. We'll talk about it in two weeks. But to understand this, we have to go back in time of what that prophecy originally applied to and then see how Matthew is understanding it, all right? So if we were to go back to Isaiah chapter 7, we're, we're turning the clock back 700 years. Here's the situation. The nation of Israel has gone through a civil war. The north, northern kingdoms have all been already gone into exile. All that's left is Judah in the south, maybe little Benjamin. They have Jerusalem. So they're teetering. They're in a dangerous situation. There's a king on the throne named Ahaz. He's a wicked king. He doesn't believe in Yahweh. He worships other gods. But Isaiah is the prophet. And about this time, there's two nations from the north who are threatening to invade Judah, destroy it, and take it over and annex it to their kingdoms. You with me so far? The king is scared to death. God sends Isaiah to tell this king that is not going to happen. I am still with the nation. I am still with you. And he said, um, you can ask for whatever sign you want, and I will give you a sign to show that what I'm saying is true. The king goes all pious. Remember, he's not a believer. He goes all pious. Oh, I don't need a sign, uh, whatever. And Isaiah says, well, okay, well, God's going to give you one anyway. And he says, here's the sign. He says, a woman slash virgin. We'll come back to that in a second. Right? It's the word, there's a word in Hebrew. I won't go over that. But a woman slash virgin um, is going to conceive, and she's going to have a child, and she's going to name that child Emmanuel, which means God with us. And before that child reaches adulthood, the two kings you're so worried about will be completely destroyed. Are you with me? You following the storyline so far? Okay. So now it's interesting as you go back in that verse and you look at this word for virgin or young woman. It is a woman, it's a word that's normally used to describe a young woman who has not yet been married, therefore a virgin. It doesn't have to mean virgin. It can mean young woman. It normally would be understood to be virgin. But what I want you to catch is it's a, it's a word that has a lot of flexibility in it. Okay? How, you, how you translate it. So in the time of Isaiah, Isaiah wasn't predicting for King Ahaz, a virgin is going to have a baby, right? What he's saying is someone who's a virgin now is going to get married and have a baby named Emmanuel. There's not going to be two virgin births. And for this to make any sense to the king to be assigned to him, it's got to happen now. But catch this, as Matthew now standing after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he knows how Jesus was born of a virgin, he looks back and says, wow, there was a lot more to that than met the eye. In the same way that today, we, you know, the Israel would celebrate Passover, right? But when Jesus came and died for the sins of the nation as the true Lamb of God, we understood for the first time Passover was a picture of something bigger. We didn't understand that until after the death. And in the same way, this prophecy about a virgin having a child, we thought we understood that. It was much bigger. 
And so he says, God is fulfilling. And so the story of Israel, how God stepped in in the time of Ahaz to protect God was with us, that story is being fulfilled at a higher level now as he's come to, to save us from our sins. So he, he uh, says, this is the first fulfillment. He says, so all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is Isaiah seven fourteen. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has come to be with us. And so if you turn it over then, you don't have to turn your page. I have to remind. Verse 24, so when Joseph wakes up, he's, I'm sure, blown away. Um, he, he did exactly what the angel Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. So he, he does what he's supposed to do. He, he changes their status. I don't know if they have a wedding or whatever, but they have to move in. We're now officially married. Um, and he, he says, but, and this is kind of interesting, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So it would appear that he just wants to have like no misunderstanding at all about this. I had nothing to do. He wants to make sure that no one could ever say, I got your dates off or whatever. And so um, what's interesting here, and here's another uh, lens we have to take off, um, is that notice it says that they didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to his son. And so in some Christian circles, it has been taught that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And the Bible clearly indicates that is not the case, that after, uh, after Jesus was born, then they went on to have a normal sexual relationship in marriage. Well, we get to Matthew later on. We'll read about at least four brothers that Jesus had and at least two, son, uh, two daughters. So we know that he had at least a family of uh, uh, seven, and he was the oldest. You know, so some of you think he can't relate to your family. He can't. All right. So, so that's the passage, right? That, that's the passage. Uh, amazing account of the supernatural birth that, that God is coming to be with us in this son to rescue us as a race from our sins. Uh, something big is happening. He's laying the groundwork for this whole story about Jesus of Nazareth. So it's you know, incredible. But uh, today what I want to do is I want to highlight one big picture principle that flows out of this. It's so important for us to get. It flows out of Matthew, his story, the gospel, and the big picture story God is telling uh, in, in the Bible, the history of our race. And so if you look there on your note sheet, you have a section that's called something. It's called uh, the presence, the big picture. And what I want to do is give you kind of one big picture principle that's really important for us to understand as followers of Jesus, kind of what he's doing in our life. Then we'll come back at the end and have one important question for you, all right? So just one big picture, one question. So here's the big picture. God is pursuing us. What we learn in this passage today is that in Messiah, God is pursuing us as a race. And so I, gotta set the, I have to set this up. Um, you know, last month, we just got back from Israel again. I know several of you, many of you have, have gone with us to Israel. Um, and for those of you who have gone, you'll remember that the very first night, we, we go into this, uh, this hotel. We get there about midnight. And so the next morning, we're up early. And our very first site is um, a, a place uh, right near there that's called uh, Yad Hashmonah. And uh, at this uh, kind of retreat center, they have built what's called a biblical gardens. Now, um, they don't picture like English garden. It's very different than that. But um, it's just kind of a couple acres or whatever set aside. And the whole point of this is to kind of recreate uh, life in ancient Israel. So you've got like a millstone there. You've got a threshing floor there. You've got a wine press there. You've got a tomb there. You've got the, the kind of big uh, kind of uh, a stone that you roll around. You just... They're trying to help you understand 
the culture, the history, the geography, the, the agricultural seasons, kind of all things Israel, so that as you go through uh, the rest of the tour, you'll be able to picture these things. So we start there. But before we take that tour that morning, I do a teaching. It's a real short teaching. I think it's like three hours. But uh, it's called, um, I, I call this teaching Pursuing the Presence, right? And so here's, uh, here's what I, well, I'll tell them is that in many ways, you can summarize the whole message of the Bible by the pursuit of the presence of God. In other words, we were created to live in the presence, right, in, in the garden. Because of our sin and rebellion, we got kicked out of the garden, no longer living in the presence. But what we see throughout the Bible is God pursuing us as a race ever closely, working through history to restore us to the presence. And so I want to take a few minutes to kind of walk you through this narrative in the Bible so you can see the stages of this God coming closer. So let's start with Abraham, right? The first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's a mess. Uh, the world's on their own. We've rebelled. The world's on And so in chapter 12, God steps in to start something new. In chapter 12, he calls Abraham, who grew up in a pagan land where they worship the moon god. He calls him out of that. God pursues Abraham. And he tells them, from your family, we're going to create a great nation. And one day from that family, the whole world is going to be blessed. So I'm choosing you so that from you, the whole world can be blessed. And so, of course, over time, his descendants become a large nation. They go down to Egypt. They become slaves in Egypt. Moses comes, delivers them. They come out. Three months later, they're out Mount Sinai. God shows up, scares everyone to death. Uh, they said, why don't you go up the mountain and get the small print? We'll stay down here. You deal with him. So he goes up. He's getting, while he's up there for 40 days, people are getting antsy down below. Maybe God took him out. So they build a golden calf. They rebel. We'll come back to that part of the story later, right? But when Moses comes down and they deal with that whole issue, one of the things that God has told them to do right away, he says, I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you as a nation. I've chosen you so I can live with you, so I can bring the presence. Are you with me? So he says, the very, one of the first things he says, and you, if you go to Exodus, you'll see this. Chapter after chapter, I want you to build a tent. You live in tents. I want to live in a tent. Uh, I want you to build a very special tent to these specifications, and I want you to put that tent, we'll call it the tabernacle, I want you to put it right in the center of the nation. So think of the symbolism of this. Three tribes of the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. I want to be right in the center of the nation. And look what he says there on your note sheet. Uh, this is what he says in Exodus uh, 25, 8. He tells Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me, or we'd call it a tabernacle, that I may what? Dwell. Now, don't forget that. He says, I, I've chosen you because I want to dwell with you. And when you get to after they finish the tabernacle, we get to Exodus 40, the presence of God comes and fills. God moves in to the tent. And from that point on, there's a cloud over, over the top representing the presence of God. And when the cloud would move, the nation would move. When the cloud would stay, the nation would stay. That God has come to be with them and to lead them and to guide them and to protect them. You see, God has come. The presence is being restored. But of course, we're going to fast forward 500 years. And King David comes along and he says, you know, the tent's getting pretty old. Uh, we need to build like a permanent location for God to dwell so that the nation can come and worship together at this one place. And so God says, no, it's not your job to do that, but we'll let your son do that. 
And so Solomon builds a temple. And if you study that in 2 Chronicles 5, that when they finish it, guess what? The presence of God comes. And the glory is so great, they can't even enter the temple. God is moving in. These are his people he wants to dwell. But of course, the nation of Israel continues to rebel for hundreds of years. God begins to send the prophets. He says, if you continue to rebel, you continue to worship other gods, you continue to commit murder and crime and social injustice, I'm going to expel you from the land. The temple will not save you just because I'm there. And so, of course, they do. And so in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel, the prophet, he's already been part part of the early deportations to Babylon. And Ezekiel has a vision. And in the vision, God takes him back to the temple and he sees where the Shekinah glory of God was. And Ezekiel watches as the glory lifts up and leaves Jerusalem. God is moving out. The sin has become too great. And so sure enough, shortly after that, Babylon completely destroys the city, destroys the temple, and they go into exile because of their sin. But the prophets, as I said earlier, they said that one day God would return. I think of Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, that she has been paid back twice for all her sins. God is coming back. He promised one day he'll come back, and he will be with them, and he'll forgive their sins. But they never saw it, imagine it happening like it did. At the time of Jesus, there was a lot of expectation that when God came back and forgave them and rescued them from their enemies, the Messiah would build a new temple, that God would return to his people. They had the temple. Herod had built this amazing temple, the biggest sanctuary in the ancient world. It was beautiful, but God had never come back in the same way. And so they're waiting for Messiah to come and for God to return and to forgive their sins and to bring the kingdom. But they never imagined it would happen the way it did. Because what we're reading today is how God has come to be with them. That God has come to be with them, not in a building, but in a person. And it's really interesting because if you move on in the New Testament, the the Gospel of John, for example, here's how John gives his account of God coming back to the nation of Israel. If you look in, uh, on your note sheet, in John chapter 1, it says, the word became flesh. Remember how John 1 starts, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then if you jump down to verse 14, which is where we are here, the word became flesh, that God became one of us. And catch us, he made his what? Dwelling. Dwelling. Guess what the word is in Greek? He tabernacled with us. God has come to be with us, no longer in a building, in a person, to reveal himself, to reach out. And then, remember what Jesus said? This one's not on your note sheet, but in John chapter 2, he said to the religious leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. See, he is the temple. Jesus is the Messiah, and he did rebuild it. He is the temple. But that temple is now going to be destroyed. Why? So that we can now, God can come closer still. And so after his death for us, our sin, it opens up a new way. And when you move out into the New Testament, what do you find out is that now God is not in a temple, he's in his people. So if you look at your note sheet, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? 
He's writing to the Christians in Corinth. They've come to Jesus, and now because of the death, resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is able to come, and he says, you have become the temple. You see, God has come closer, but this is not even the end of the story, because if you go to the next passage, we jump to the end of the story of the whole Bible in Revelation, in chapter 21, where the new, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down, and a voice comes from the throne, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell, catch that language, he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be amongst him. Here's what I want you to catch. This has been God's vision from the start. From the very start, we were created for the presence. When we rebelled, we lost the presence, and through history, it's becoming closer and closer and closer, starting with Abraham, then the nation of Israel, and then through the Messiah, and because of the Messiah, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then we come to the end of the story when we'll all be restored. Are you with me in this? So in many ways, the story of the Bible is the story of the presence, how we were created for the presence, how we lost the presence, how God has worked through Israel and worked through the Messiah to restore the presence so that now the spirit of the Messiah can be in us and we can become the temple of God and then when he comes back, all wrongs will be turned right, and we will live in his presence. Are, are you with me? You following the story? And so this passage here in Matthew becomes a very important passage because what, we're, what God is revealing to us is this is how God came to be with us. We'll pick it up. Let me catch, I want you to catch this. It is no accident that Matthew starts his story in Matthew 1 with God coming to be with us. And he ends his gospel in Matthew 28 with Jesus saying, I will be with you always. It is the bookends. God has come to restore the presence. Now, that leads to a really, really, really important question in our lives. So this is all groundwork, right? This was just preparation. Uh, now I'm going to back up the truck. You ready? So here we go. There you know, it's a section called the presence, the big question. This is, this is a question I want you to mull over. I want you to think about this week. I want you to pray through this question. And the question goes like this. We've, we've seen that God is pursuing us. Here's the question. Are you pursuing him? We've seen what God has done, this plan for our race, going back to thousands of years, going to Abraham, and he's carefully worked out this plan so that you and I can come into the presence and the question is, so God is pursuing us, are you pursuing him? Remember when, um, when, Egypt, uh, when uh, Israel came out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up, they rebel, golden calf. I don't know if you remember, what, but when, when, uh, after Moses came down and kind of cleared that, cleaned up the place, God told Moses, okay, listen, I'm not going with you anymore. I'm afraid I'll just get irritated and wipe you out. So I'll send someone to lead you, but uh, I'm not going. And here is what's one of my favorite passages of Scripture right here. Is, uh, here's what Moses said. I want you to catch this. He said, God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Do you catch what Moses is saying? He's saying, if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. Can I tell you something? In my life, this has been such a prayer of mine for so long. God, if you're not with me, I don't want to go. Like, I don't want to be ever out there on my own. Like, if there's one thing I need in my life, it's the presence of God. Right? 
If there's one thing you need in your life, it's the presence of God. Without God, what do you have? You're lost, right? Look what he goes on and he says, how will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Men and women, the one thing we need in life more than anything else is the presence of God. So the question is, are you pursuing the presence? And she said, well, how do I know? Well, I want to give you two words that come to my mind right away, just a, just a quick like flash test, right? And I want to throw these words out there. We'll talk through them. But I really want you to meditate on them. I want you to think about this this week, all right? Um, it's not so much I'm looking for a decision today. This is serious business. You know, you might need something to mull on this. But I want to give you two words, just a quick test. Are you pursuing the presence? One is a negative word. One is a positive. So the first, let's start with the negative. The, the first word I would write down on your note sheet somewhere is the word sin. One thing we know from the Bible from beginning to end is that nothing separates us from the presence faster than sin. Now, sin at its core is about rebellion. Sin at its core is about, I know better, I'm not trusting you, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to lead my life, I'm not going to let you lead, I'm not going to do what you want, I'm going to do what I want. So sin at its core is that we take control of our life, we do what we want, not what he wants, we're going to rebel, right? So what we see throughout the Bible is that sin separates us from the presence. This is why Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden, because of sin. This is why Israel lost the temple and the nation. They were driven out because of their sin. From cover to cover, we see that sin stops the presence of God in our lives. We see this in the New Testament. Remember that passage we looked at in Corinthians about you are the temple of the Holy Spirit now? I want to go back to that, and I want to compare what he says about temple of the Holy Spirit and sin, all right? Now, the particular sin he's going to identify here is sexual sin. Um, it wouldn't have to be. It could be any sin, but he's gonna, this is the one he's going to use. And the reason is, in Corinth, these people had come to Christ out of a very sexually promiscuous background. And so they're coming to Jesus. They're still kind of practicing a lot of their old things. One of them was sexual sin. And so here's what, here's what um, Paul says. He says, listen, you need to flee sexual immorality. You need to run for your life. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Amen. <laughs> Can I get an answer? All right, so, uh, well timed. Uh, yeah, so he says, your bodies are a temple. Now, I want you to catch this because we tend to spiritualize this. What he's saying is, Michael, your body, this one. Not metaphorical body, no, your body, my body, your body. If you are a follower of Jesus, your body has become a temple of the Holy Spirit. God has moved in to your body, and your body doesn't belong to you anymore. He bought your body with his death on the cross. You belong to him. It is his body, and therefore, this is the reason why in Ezekiel, he saw he saw the spirit leaving the temple because they were doing idolatry in the temple. And God said, I'm leaving then. If you're going to worship other gods, I'm leaving. And so now we are the temple. Your body is a temple. My body is a temple. 
God has moved in. He's purchased us. And nothing will destroy the presence of God in our life faster than sin. Look what he says. Do you not you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So we say, I want to experience the presence of God in my life, but I want to hold on to my sin. We're saying, I want to experience the presence of King Jesus, but I want to rebel against King Jesus. You see, it doesn't work. If you want the fellowship of King Jesus, you have to come under the leadership of King Jesus. Now, the example he's giving here is sexuality, but like I said, this could be any sin. This, this could be like, hey, a refusal to forgive. Uh, this could be a refusal to surrender our finances. God is talking to us about our finances. We're refusing. This could be God's calling us to a ministry, and we're saying no. I mean, it could be anything. But what I want you to catch is that if you want the experience of the presence of God, if you want God to journey with you to your future like Israel, then there has to be a surrender that we listen and follow. Now, let me just say this real quickly, because I'm always very aware of it. In a group like this, or you over in the ridge, there are some people here that we need to get a conscience, and there's some people who have too much of conscience. Right? And, and I want to say, when I talk about sin, what I'm saying is, hey, is there an area in your life where God has been speaking to you? I'm not talking about trying to go through and look through every cranny of your souls or anything possibly wrong. Of course there is. We're messed up people. But as God works on us, he begins to heighten areas of, hey, this needs to change. And all I'm asking is, is he doing that? Because if you will respond to that, you'll experience the presence of God more and more. If you don't, you will lose whatever experience of the presence of God you have. In fact, this is a great day. So some of you might be here. Some of you might be living in flat-out rebellious disobedience right now. But as I'm talking, you're going, oh, no, I'm good. I mean, this happens to me. I remember talking to one guy one time. He's, he's explained to me how he's leaving his wife because he's fallen in love with another woman, and he's so happy, and God wants him to be happy, so he knows it's the will of God. We have a tremendous capacity for self-deception, don't we? And here's what I'm telling you. If you lie to yourself long enough, you get to a place that doesn't even bother you anymore. So you may be here and living in flagrant sin. You're just like so used to it. You go, no, we're good. So I just want to make you aware of that possibility. But in general, what I'm just saying here to you is that so I'm not asking you to do like a morbid self-introspection. Is there anything wrong? That's not what I'm talking about. That's not how Jesus, remember he says his burden is easy, light. When you're walking with Jesus, he just has a way of like making you aware of things that need to change. And then you just, yes, Lord, I will. And you surrender and then you get more presence, right? You experience the presence. It's just this easy walk, right? Sometimes the decision to surrender is hard, but the walk is straightforward, right? So I'm saying, is there an area of your life that in the past or now that God has been talking to you about and you've been resisting the Holy Spirit, and if so, that will kill the presence of God in your life. Sin will kill it. The second word is the word time. 
And I'm really convinced of this. If we want to experience the presence of God, we need to pursue God. And what that looks like is we need to spend intentional time pursuing God. Now, some of the ways we do that are obvious. Like, you're here at church today, right? So why do we come to church? Because we're pursuing God. We're not just going through the motions. I hope you're not just going through the motions. I hope it's not just to check off a card. Like, when we walk in this place, we should be pursuing God. That's why we're here. We come to pursue Him in worship. We come to pursue Him in His Word. We're coming to meet with God. So just by being here, that's fantastic. Uh, probably most of us in this room are in a life group, right? And you're pursuing God. That's awesome. So these are all things we need to be doing. But the thing I want to highlight is if you want to experience the presence of God, I'm pretty convinced of this, you need to be pursuing God one-on-one on a regular basis. Now, let me say this. I grew up in a church that if you were to say, what is a good Christian? There's three or four things you had to do. One of them is have what we call a daily quiet time. And because of that, it was so much taught. Like, we didn't care about loving people. Just have the daily quiet time, you know? <laughs> Don't love God and love you. Just go to church and do your daily devotions, and we're good, you know? Tithe. Uh, so I think that created, at least in my life and for a lot of people's life, sort of a legalistic approach to spending time with God. It was something you had to do to be a good Christian, kind of forgot what it was about. And that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about, I'm saying this is the way relationships work. You know, if you're single, you see a girl you want to know, you have to ask her out. You've got to spend some time. You know, it's like that relationship won't develop without intentional time. I can pretty much guarantee you, if you're in a marriage right now, you say, we have a great marriage. The, the next thing is, yeah, we never see each other, but we have a great marriage. No, no. No. Marriages are going through a tough time, don't want to be together. Marriages are good time, they want to be together. They invest in intentional time. It's the way relationships work. And so if we want to experience the presence of God, we need to pursue that. And there's no substitute for pursuing it one-on-one. And this is becoming, uh, you'll probably hear more about this, but this is becoming a bigger and bigger theme in my life. As I pray over our church, where are we going? What does it take to unleash a movement? What needs to happen next? Where are we going I find myself continuing to come back. I think we are really lazy in this area, my hunch. So this is not like a guilt time at all. This is just like a doctor visit, all right? So what I'm saying is that my hunch would be, now I could be completely wrong here, but if I just said, how many people at Rocky Peak spend time with the Lord on a regular basis, significant time with the Lord, I'd probably say 15%. I mean, that's my hunch. I I hope I'm wrong. But I would say that whatever percentage we are, it's probably way better than most churches out there, just because I know our congregation. But what I'm saying is that we've kind of gotten this place like the greatest enemy of our lives spiritually is just busyness. And here's here's what I want to say is that if we're not intentionally pursuing God, if you're not spending time with God in his word, listening, asking for direction, processing life, how do we expect to experience the presence and what I want you to catch is if God has come down personally to planet Earth to die for us so that we can have this relationship, how crazy is it if we're too busy? And this is what I want you to catch. I really believe, I think that we're, we're, it's so easy to deceive ourselves. Like, we'll talk about the two things. Love God, love people, right? We, that's our two things. Love God. We say, how are you doing? You're loving God. Oh, I'm good. Great, can I see your calendar? I, I want to see, um, I just want to see like, 
if you love God with all your heart, show me where you're, how that relationship's developing and when that's happening. And again, I think you know my heart. There's just not any like, guilt thing going on yet. What I'm saying is that I want us to grow. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that spending time with God alone is what, what some people would call a keystone habit. Like in the field of habits, there's certain habits that if you create this habit, it has unintended consequences. It affects all kinds of areas of your life that you're not even trying to change. Like in other words, studies have been done when people start working out regularly, they start eating better. Even if that's not one of their goals. There's something that, well, you just work out, you feel better, you're looking better, you don't want to mess it up by eating what you used to eat. It just kind of naturally happens. And so there's probably five or six things that happen when most people just start working out. They're unintended consequences. We're not even trying, but that's what we call a keystone habit. What is a habit that if you do this one thing, it has huge emphasis in a lots area. I'm becoming more and more convinced that spending time with God one-on-one is a keystone habit. That it unleashes all kinds, it makes the weekend services better. It makes worship better. It makes sharing Christ better. It makes our homes better. It makes families better. It makes uh, relationships better. That things go up because we're experiencing, pursuing the presence of God in our lives. And so I, I just want you to be thinking about this. I want you to go before the Lord. I want you to be thinking that this is not like a, at all like a shame on you, get your act together. No, no, no. This is a, hey, can we put our heads together here? Can we think about this together? Can we think about what Jesus has done to, to come so he can dwell inside of us? Can, you, can we get in touch that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that when I touch you, I touch Jesus, because he, you and he are connected now? That when there, we have this amazing opportunity to pursue God together as a church, and we don't want to miss that, do we? Do we want to go through life half-hearted? You know, do we want to go through life mediocre, just making it through? Or do we want to be changed? Do we want to be transformed? Do we want to know God and be known by God? And do we want to be a conduit of his life to a dying world? You see, and I'm becoming increasingly convinced that this is critical for us. God is pursuing us. Are we pursuing him? So here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to go home and just make some, you know, some rash commitment. Here's what I'm going to do. I just, want to, I just want you to go home and say, God, can we just process this together? And can we, can we just begin to talk about what, would you begin to speak? Would you begin to lead? I, I don't even know where to start. Could you begin to help? That we just go to God and we just begin to say, hey, this is a powerful message, this whole pursuing the presence thing. And I, I don't want to be one of those Christians that claim to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm just not following. And so God, can you help me? Can you show me? And I, what I'm doing, I'm just inviting you to go with me on a journey as a church to say, okay, can we pursue him together? Can we see how this works? We'll learn how together. We'll figure this out. I know a lot of you have tried it certain ways, didn't work. I get all that. That's very common. But I really believe for our future as a church, for your future and your life, that this is going to become a critical component of transformation for us. There in your note sheet, quote from Bill Hybels, uh, his book, Too Busy Not to Pray. And he says, authentic Christianity is a walk. It's a supernatural walk with a living, dynamic, communicating God. And thus the heart and soul of the Christian life, catch us, is learning to hear God's voice and developing the courage to do what he tells us to do. That's what I call listen and follow. Embarrassingly few Christians, that's what I'm talking about, ever reach this level of authenticity. Most Christians are just too busy. 
And the arch enemy of spiritual authenticity is busyness. Any way you cut it, a key ingredient in authentic Christianity is time. Not leftover time, not throwaway time, but quality time. So I'm throwing out the ball here. Let's play ball together. I'm throwing out the ball. Hey, as a church, can we gather around this and we say, God, we want to pursue you. We want you to help us to see what that means, what that looks like. Is there sin in my life? Is there anything that's keeping me from the presence? And then what do you want me to do to pursue the presence? What would that look like in my life so we can build that kind of relationship that I could experience God with us, leading, guiding? That I could sense the spirit, like the cloud in my life, leading, guiding, so that when you move, I move. And I experience your transforming power, and you come to live with and in me, and as a result, uh, others will come to know you as well. Let's pray together. Father, we just, uh, we're so thankful for your word, the, the beauty of it, the brilliance of it. God, this story that you're telling of a God who's pursuing us, coming ever closer to dwell with us. This is your vision, your dream. God, I pray you'd wake us up. I think of Ephesians, awake sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine. Messiah will shine on you. And God, that's what we want. We want more of you. We want to experience your presence. We want you to lead us and guide us. We want to empower us. And so, God, we just pray today that as we, we spend some time in worship now, as we celebrate how you've been with us every step of the way, you've been pursuing us, that we would respond by pursuing you. And we pray you use this gifts and offering to build a place that is truly a light on a hill where people can come to experience the presence of God and then go out to change the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? And that's the gospel, that God has come to be with us. And because of the life and the death and the resurrection, nothing can stand between us. Perhaps other than our sin, right? Our disobedience, but the door is wide open into the presence. And so may this be a week that you pursue the presence in your life. May you grow an experience of his presence with you, leading and teaching and guiding. May you sense his power empowering you, a motivation from his spirit, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, as Paul writes in Philippians. As he said, there's no accident that Matthew starts his gospel saying that God has come to be with us, and he ends it with, I'll be with you every step of the way. Because in Christ, God has come to be with us. May this be a week where you experience his presence in new ways, turning away from sin, turning to him, to, to pursue him, time alone. And if you need to pursue him even now, whether it's in the Ridge venue over here, you want some extra prayer, we would love to do that. Over here by the walls on both sides, my right, your left, we've got the prayer team in both of our venues. We'd love to pray with you. So until next week, may this be a week where you pursue God, you experience his presence in new ways, and he calls you on with clear direction on how to listen and follow. Amen? God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week. <laughs>